This is the National Museum's Liverpool podcast, where we thread together stories from our collections with people's experiences in Liverpool today, exploring connections between the past and present. I'm Megan India McGurk, and today we go beneath the waves, from the animals that dwell in dark waters to the trees that thrive on open shores. We explore our relationship with seas and oceans, our impact on them, and how, if we look closely enough, a better understanding of our seas can help with both our external and internal world. We kick off in this vein, beginning with the unlikely topic of mental health. If you can metaphorically get a little cold chisel to to knock out of your kind of cranium into into the wider universe again, and that first little chink of light that comes through keep working on it until it's a window or a door. And then you realize that what you felt is a universe of limitation is quite easily with a little toffee hammer, you're out. That's mental health advocate, Chris Shaw, describing breaking free from mental suffering. And once you plugged back into what's going on out there rather than what's ruminating in here, you tend to find that your mental health begins to improve because you're no longer um, in the distraction of your own head. Mental health difficulties can make your world feel small. Like a dark cave, it's hard to see how you might escape. That little hammer, Chris describes, would help many of us let the light in. But what exactly is it? Well, you might not expect it, but Chris was desperately seeking a hangover cure one Christmas when a friend invited him along to take part in this particular method of salvation. After a few drinks one Christmas evening, he said he'd really need to come for a dip with us tomorrow. Uh, and so I did, and I just found that the incredible hangover cure for that particular day was also something that, with working in mental health for donkeys, I began to realise that there was a genuine, whatever mood you took into the cold water, you don't bring back out. Cold water can transform your mood. Chris would know. He's since become a pioneer of New Brighton's open water swimming scene and was one of the Olympic torchbearers in 2012 for his commitment to championing inclusive exercise. He knows, better than many, how plunging yourself in freezing cold water might actually be a good idea. The mood-enhancing shock that you have uh, is instantaneous. You don't necessarily need to be in the water for a long time the kind of the, the mental health benefits of it, it's one, it's the decision, the very hard decision to get into cold water, which is, um, you know, always difficult, no matter how often you do it, to make a conscious decision to get into an environment that is challenging and very cold. So there's the kind of, there's the kind of benefits of, about getting used to making harsh decisions, but also whatever happens physiologically from when you immerse yourself into very cold water, it synaptically fastly changes the mood that you're in. So I think, again, people become quite addicted to it, really, because it's almost like a legal high, really, without kind of overplaying that side of it. But I remember when I first started doing it, having to go to meetings where you're supposed to have a little bit of seriousness and gravitas to what you were doing, and I'd have to be very careful sometimes not to be beaming and smiling rather than serious and... Um, because you can have four or five hours after cold water with this incredible feeling of elation. So you can see that as well as kind of, for kind of lots of physical inflammatory conditions, arthritis and 
uh, and all those other kind of illnesses that kind of bring an inflammatory aspect to them, that as well as that um, anti-inflammatory impact of cold water, it's also the mood reset. So it's a kind of double benefit, really. In recent years, what was a niche group of eccentric swimmers on the Wirral has spawned into a community of interrelated groups like the New Brighteners and Chili Dippers, all with different aspirations and abilities. You don't need to be particularly fit to take part in wild swimming. In fact, a non-athletic build often acclimatises to the cold better. Combined with affordability, this makes wild swimming in Liverpool accessible to a wide range of people. Given the potential mental health benefits of wild swimming, this can only be good news when so many of us seem to be struggling. Mental health charity Mind states that one in four people in England will experience a mental health problem of some kind each year. You have to ask, where have we gone so wrong? Having worked in the mental health industry for so many years, Chris has seen how our development as a species, particularly our separation from the natural world, is not all good news for our well-being. Again, as we evolve into even more complex and, and sometimes incredible thinking, but also sometimes damaging thinking, the more that we kind of evolve our cleverness, really, you've got to be careful that what you're leaving behind might also be your health. As a species that was kind of traditionally at its very best when it was outdoors, ranging and doing lots of things in common purpose and using this incredible processor that we've got to kind of fathom a way through difficulties that were experienced in that kind of lifestyle. But all that kind of fight and flighty stuff now is kind of translated into everyday anxieties from even just going into shops and things for some folk. The flight or fight response, you might recognise as short breath, tight muscles, beads of sweat, is our survival mechanism evolved to prepare us in reaction to, say, the relatively rare event of a lion attacking. But these days, it's more often triggered by the daily occurrence of a full inbox, leading to chronic stress. Paradoxically, the very real physical impact of freezing cold water could help. Having to make a difficult decision makes some of those other decisions that have become difficult slightly less um, uh, debilitating. So lots of folk nowadays with anxiety understandably find social interaction and so uh, lots of things that at one time we just took for granted quite difficult. So trying to find a way of, of kind of depathologizing anxiety but enabling people to kind of have a, a range of different things that they can apply to de-anxietalize doesn't necessarily mean that you always have to default for the kind of medication or, or psychotherapeutic intervention because very often it's just returning to the simplicity of what we've always done that has efficacy. Chris is careful to remind us that for people who have experienced major trauma, then the right psychological or psychiatric intervention is needed. But when it comes to day-to-day -day anxieties, pathologizing our mental health may be better for pharmaceutical companies than it is for our own well-being. Perhaps we have more agency than we might think. Chris thinks back to when, as an unwilling atheist, he was working in the faith sector in South Stratfordshire. One of my um, gentle um, discussions was with this kind of pastoral need to kind of corral people and look after them, and which is great if you're vulnerable, uh, but if you ain't if you ain't vulnerable, then it's actually quite debilitating. That and that kind of pastoral need to get the flock um, kind of safe and 
you can see that when it comes to kind of public health that they've got a real dilemma because they understand that taking gentle risks is how you grow, but also that in a, in a culture of things like litigation or worry about, um, that, 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 that strangely were the, there's an incentive to discourage taking risks, whereas life in, in the raw, life in the real, and, and the life in the feeling of life comes from where you're gently pushing your boundaries and accepting those risks as choices. Because to have those choices taken away um, because it's safer that way and you're not going to be swimming in the sea and you're not going to be, you know, um, calling the RNLI out for you, uh, that sadly you can see why there's a need for society to do it. But then don't be surprised if all those dependent folk don't end up one with the or the other marching off to primary care because they're suddenly finding life scary in ways that then needs a doctor or a pillar or a potion or a psychotherapist to kind of dig out. Um, and, again, and again, I know that sounds fairly fringy, but, I, you know, I genuinely believe that if you're not gently taking the choice to take gentle risks, then you are closing down aspects of your life that are so important. This reminds me of a favourite chapter from Ken Kelsey's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, when the novel's raucous protagonist, McMurphy, commandeers a boat and hustles his fellow band of psychiatric patients out to sea. Dodging the overbearing rules of the hospital to muck about in the waves, they felt alive again. Of course, even in the novel, it's not long before they're in danger, and in the real world, it's paramount to go out to sea in a trained group. Amazingly, the Mersey has the fourth biggest tides on the planet, and so it's critical to be trained and have an understanding of the Mersey's moods. But if you do, the benefits can be huge. Yeah, I mean, we, we've, we've literally trained hundreds of folks now around uh, appreciating the, 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 you know, what the Mersey does and how to swim it. But this one event every year that's been going on for probably 30, 30-odd 30 years now, that, we, that we've, we've taken loads of folk from not classing themselves as swimmers to being safely competent and strong enough to swim across the Mersey. Uh, and it's only a mile swim, a mile, mile and a half swim, but it's a pocket battleship of a swim because the currents are so powerful. So to have someone like one guy who'd lived in Seacombe all of his life and at the age of 74 swam across the Mersey for the first time and said it had always been his ambition and to see him chugging round the coast to kind of land in Birkenhead, uh, for me, was an incredible feat of endurance and um so so i think again that you know recognizing that we've got all these incredible things on our doorsteps and rather than viewing them as this kind of things that you've got to be afraid of that if you know the rules and you go with the flow of nature rather than trying to swim against it we have some phenomenal swims as long as you know the tides because if you get it right you're tide assisted if you get it wrong even if you were Michael Phelps, you wouldn't be swimming back against it. In a world where we like things guaranteed, we've become quite detached from both nature and our emotions. The unruly nature of both are sometimes scary and often inconvenient, and so it's tempting to try and avoid them. Yet the pandemic has shown us just how damaging staying within our four walls can be for our mental health. Without learning to ride the tides, both physically and emotionally, we miss out on much that is good in life, often right under our noses. My favourite dip is off um, Vale Park Bank, in, off New Brighton, 
where you have a seal's eye view of the Liverpool waterfront. And again, because everything is heightened and accentuated visually as well as kind of mentally, that, that looking at Liverpool as dawn in the winter is just kind of reddening up behind the... Um, the, the, the views are incredible. And we've also had uh, harbour porpoises and seals. So, so, so again, to, to have a family of harbour porpoises as a kind of front drop to that iconic waterfront. And no matter how many times you see Liverpool from whatever perspective or vantage point you're looking, to see it from the nose down immersed in water with only your eyes above is to look at something that's very familiar afresh. Taking inspiration from speaking to Chris, I've just about managed some freezing cold showers and have to say they do give you a zing for the day. But there is nothing quite like the view of Liverpool as you come in from the Mersey, especially if it comes with some porpoises and seals. Certainly for the team at World Museum's Aquarium, it's not just the seas and oceans they care about, but the incredible animals within them. Here's Toby Taylor. Hi, I'm Toby Taylor, a local radio broadcaster and journalist based here in Liverpool. Living in the city, it's hard to escape our close proximity to and the city's historic relationship with the sea. While space has famously been labelled the final frontier, Arguably, it is our planet's seas and oceans that have a stronger claim to that title. Covering nearly 70% of our planet, and with over 80% of them still lying unexplored, the oceans are central to life on Earth. From the air that we breathe and the food that we eat, they are also the world's largest habitat, providing homes for thousands of species of plants and animals. One of the strangest and most interesting species in our oceans is the octopus. These eight-legged, alien-like creatures are renowned for their intelligence, ability to change colour, and even tool use. In April 2021, Polpo, a young octopus vulgaris, or common octopus to you and me, arrived at the World Museum's Aquarium. To find out more about these amazing animals and what it's like to care for them, I sat down with Ben Mitchell, the living centre manager at the aquarium and the bughouse, and Alistair Chapman, one of the aquarium's aquarists. Both of them have worked extensively with Polpo since she arrived. I began by asking them why, out of all of the thousands of species in the ocean, they had thought of having an octopus at the aquarium. Octopus are my favourite animal, basically, so they're part of the cephalopod family. Um, things like squid and nautilus are part of that as well. But yeah, I really, really love octopuses. Um, we've had a different species before in the past, the lesser octopus, and they were a lot more timid, a lot more shy. They're amazing, amazing creatures. Um, when I was younger, I just was obsessed with aliens, and then I realised that... Um, in the sea, there's loads of species that are very much like aliens. So I think that's why I was kind of drawn to the octopus. Also, I don't know if you've heard the theory that octopuses are actual aliens in the sea. Um, <laughs> I don't know if it's a, cred a credible theory, but it's like they're so different from all other animals that perhaps they did come in on a meteorite. One of the, the first things we did actually before we, we, we got the octopus, we were thinking about when the aquarium was about to be refurbished that we had a space where basically we were like, this would be a good space for an octopus tank. And we have a, a vet that visits every six months and every year we have an ethics review. So we go over like any kind of new things that have come up that we we want to kind of discuss like the, the the ethics of. And so because we were thinking about getting an octopus, um, 
we discussed with our vet, like what are the, the ethical things to consider? You know, like, is it appropriate to have an octopus um, on like in captivity on, on in an aquarium and, and things like that? And her advice was that because they are intelligent, they do need more attention, more enrichment than um, like a lot of the animals that we we have on display. And so as a part of that, Alistair um, created like a, a method of recording our interactions with her every day, as well as the feeds that we do. We will kind of just have like a, a period of time where we will just play with her. Um, and then on the sheet, we will say like what we did, whether we were just playing with her like by hand or whether we were using any of the the many, many toys that we've <laughs> got gathered around the desk. Basically, we collect like bath toys and dog toys, anything that we think will survive in the water, like we'll, we'll try with her. Um, we'll, um, yeah, we'll have a little play with it. We'll um, record how long it was, what we did, and whether it was a positive or a negative experience for her because they do have very different personalities. Um, like if you have like a very shy octopus, obviously you wouldn't be able to sort of play a lot with her because they, they might want to, you know, like just keep themselves a little bit more. Fortunately for us, we've got a, a really wild, <laughs> really wild one. And so um, like basically any, anything that we'll, we'll try with her, she, she really engages with well and she really enjoys. By the sounds of it, Polpo was clearly quite a playful octopus. But this got me thinking, how do you actually play with an octopus? It couldn't be as simple as playing fetch, could it? I have done things similar to fetch where um, if you've got like a ball that's got like a lot of air in it, if you can like force it to the bottom of the tank as much as you can, and then it'll like come back up to you. And so if she can grab it in the period where it's flowing up and down, uh, especially like if it's got something like when we when we do our feeds, we'll also add a little bit of enrichment to it. So we'll like trap it inside like a little, um, like a waffle block that we'll construct and they float as well. So we can like force it to the bottom of the tank and it'll go up and down. And she has learned to recognize that they've got food in. So she's always very eager to try and grab them. But we have just got like a lot of toys that we've, either stuff that we've bought, we've found in charity shops or like things that we've put together with bits of um, like equipment that we find in the aquarium. Like we've got lots of pipe work and, and bits like that. So we'll, we'll make little little gizmos to try on it. Yeah, like we have like, is it like dog toys? So like uh, you can play tug of war with her. Like she's uh, really strong. So you can like tug on that and she just likes... She likes human interaction as well, so you can just like wrestle. So you can just, she'll just like crawl up on your arms and then you just take your arms out of the water and, you know, try and get her off and stuff. But it's, she seems to enjoy like an octopus wrestle, I'd say. <laughs> the puzzles we give her are quite different. So we've got the waffle block, which she can pull apart. And then inside the waffle blocks, we'll put um, another puzzle in. So it could be a Tupperware, so she'd have to take the Tupperware off. Uh, there's also screwdrawers, so she has to like unscrew to get the food. Um, my favorite is putting a pokeball in, but she has to um, squeeze that open. So it's all like different different methods of her to like different ways for her to get into the food. Um, also, like with pipe work and things, we've got um, some big like valves. So you um, turn the valve so that it aligns with the pipe, and then that means the pipe's open for water to flow. And if you like turn it horizontal to it, it'll cut off the flow of water. Yeah, so we can put food in the valve and then close it. So the food's inside the closed valve. So she has to open the valve and then get her tentacles into like the small tube that's now open. So yeah, she's figured all, all that out. So it's quite impressive. Yeah, because I think like when, when we come up with stuff, 
like especially early on um if it was something where we're like oh we don't want to start around that because that is just a bit too unfair especially if like they are related to food obviously we do want it to eat so we wanted to start her off with stuff that she could do um and we we would like to make it more complex as we go. I know that one of our shared dreams, I think, is we've seen, um, you know, in pet shops where they have, um, like, on the hamster cages, those little plastic um, see-through tubes where the hamsters can, like, kind of leave the their cages for a bit. Like, we would like to construct some kind of maze with food at the end because she can squeeze into basically, like, any space that yeah. is bigger than the size of a beak. And so if we had, like, a lot of, like, very small tubes that lead to, like, a food in the middle, like... And she could get through a maze. I think that would be really cool, but it's just the logistics of it that <laughs> we're still thinking on. Like her wild counterparts, a lot of Polpo's simulation and learning comes from feeding. And it was obvious that the team had put a lot of thought and care into creating challenges and puzzles that would keep her occupied. I was curious to find out what she ate, given that in the wild, octopuses must learn how to catch a variety of live prey. Her main diet is crab, fish. Um, she can eat things like prawns as well, mussels. We've we put mussel shells in for her as well. So, I mean, the crab's the best one for her because it's sort of like a puzzle in itself. As Even though it's not a live crab, what she'll do is she'll use her beak and she'll bite into a joint in the crab shell. And then that's when she injects her a venom. And what that venom does is it breaks down the crab inside and then she can like pull apart the crab and nibble at it. Yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> Often with um, animals, like we'd always prefer to feed them or like frozen food because it's, it's a lot more difficult for us, you know, to like supply them with live animals. But with some animals, sometimes like if they don't want to take the, the frozen food, then you do have to give them live animals. But fortunately for us, as always, Palpo is very good. And so she was very cooperative and is always happy to eat. I'd heard a rumor that Polpo could sometimes be a bit of a diva. Yet everything Ben and Alistair had said so far suggested otherwise. Given her intelligence and that she seemed to enjoy playing, I was keen to learn more about how Polpo behaved, especially around humans, and what her personality was really like. Like compared to um, Octopus that we've had in the past, she, she is very like interactive and, and when there is a crowd in front of her, she likes going up to the window and she'll move around and things like that because um, a risk that um, sometimes aquariums face when they have Octopus on display is that they all have very different personalities. So if you've got like a shy octopus... Um, they might just hide all the time and then you just like never see the octopus. But we've, we've never had that um, problem with Polpo. The night that we got her, um, where we had been staying for a long time and we, we were very like tired and like, oh, like, you know, is, is anything gone wrong? Um, and then the the parcel arrived. Even then, she she already had like that kind of like wild personality where she was quite excited to just be like, out of the box and like seeing what's going on. And um, so octopus have uh, some like defense mechanisms for when they're stressed, like so they can change color. And so um, if you see one like turn white, that can mean that they're scared. Um, and another defense that they can have is they can shoot out ink, you know, so if, if you imagine like that they're in danger, they'll shoot out ink to escape from the predators. And so um, if you like get an octopus, you would often find that um, in the tank, uh, when when you open the box, like there will be like some ink inside there, but there wasn't any ink at all because I think she's she's just excited yeah. <laughs> with life and just anything that comes to her. I think at the weekend, um, I fed her a bit later than usual, and she she like she can splash water out as she can use what's called a funnel. So she like sucks in water and then she like jets it out. And if you're late with the food, she it does seem like she's a bit of a diva and she will get a bit grumpy and uh, splash you. 
I was particularly interested in Alice's relationship with Polpo. As her primary feeder and source of care, I was keen to find out if the amount of time that he had spent with her had led to a sense of trust and tolerance developing between them. Perhaps even a special bond like that which was famously depicted in the documentary My Octopus Teacher. Um, I'd like to think so. I mean, whether or not um, she is like, oh, there's Alistair, that's my favourite. Um, she's definitely mine. I'd like to think like she doesn't splash me that often, so I feel like she likes me. Um, there is a member of staff who often gets splashed. I, um, I won't mention their name, <laughs> but um, she does love to interact. So if, like with her feed and like she'll put her arms up and she'll like grab all of us and like try and um, try and bring us in. Um, there was a nice, nice moment. Um, I got into the tank with her. So in order to clean these tanks, it's a lot easier for us to drain them down and get in. So, and it's also easier to have her stay in the tank. If we got her out of the tank and then trying to get her back in, it'll be, be a fuss. So we kept her in there. So um, I was in the tank and at first I felt like, because obviously we've played with her loads from behind the scenes, behind the tank. I was like, oh, she'll, she's going to be fine. But she was a little bit shy at first. She did like retreat to a corner. And then say after about five, 10 minutes, she started to get curious. Uh, like she came over, tried to pull pull my boot off which was quite fun um because i was in there with like a, a wetsuit on to make sure that well don't want her to like grab hold of my leg or bite me or anything like that but yeah she did come over and she would like crawl over my body and kind of felt like i was giving her a cuddle at one point which was uh, quite lovely <laughs> that's probably like um the highlight for me um actually being like because at the top of the tank when you're feeding and playing like that it's it's a bit different there's still a bit of a barrier there but when you get in the tank it's just like she's just there you know she's always quite mischievous like trying to grab hold of the ladder because i need the ladder to get in i can't just get in so she's grabbing hold of the ladder so i'm wrestling her with the ladder and then obviously she tries to get my boot off and then she tries to get my glove off as well but yeah it's it's just fun like her just just coming over and yeah i'd say those sort of interactions have been my favorite it feels like she does want to be interacting with you uh there and like I've definitely created a bond with her. My octopus teacher captured our attention in a time when we couldn't have been more cut off from the natural world. Filmmaker Craig Foster was searching for a life reset and found it by repeatedly returning to a cold underwater kelp forest at a remote location in False Bay near Cape Town, where he strikes up a unique bond with an octopus. Whether it's wild swimming on the Mersey or free diving in South Africa, are we finally understanding our dependence on the natural world at a time that couldn't be more critical? Here's Toby again, exploring our reciprocal relationship with our sea's flora. Nestled amongst the amazing exhibits of the World Museum's Aquarium, is a display exhibiting one of our planet's most interesting marine habitats, mangrove forests. Mangrove forests are amongst some of the most biologically diverse habitats on our planet, providing food and sanctuary to a vast array of animal and plant life. Lesser well-known, though, is the crucial role these incredible plants can play in combating climate change and the protection they offer millions of people globally from the effects of extreme weather. Join me, Toby Taylor, a local radio broadcaster and journalist, as I chat to Simon Clark, a flooding and climate change scientist who specialises in eco-hydraulics, about mangroves, their importance in challenging the climate crisis and the threats they face. I started by asking a simple question that I'd often personally wondered about. What actually is a mangrove? 
honestly, there's a lot of fluidity around that term. Because when people say mangrove, they could be referring to an individual tree, a species of which there are multiple mangrove species. Or they might be referring to the actual ecosystem itself. So when you say, oh, the mangrove, do you mean the forest or the tree? Um, and which type of tree? So there's, yeah, there's definitely a bit of, a, I, know, I suppose, some uncertainty uh, when you really talk about it. But what people really generally refer to is this um, semi-aquatic habitat, this boundary um, species. So mangroves themselves are um, salt-tolerant trees, what we call uh, halophytes. Um, and basically, they adapted to live in these liminal boundary systems that have really harsh conditions. So you need to think about regions which are just near the equator. You'll find mangrove forests along the coast there. An estimation by the World Bank suggests that in over 100 nations, which is about, uncover about uh, 700,000 kilometres of coastline. So they're extremely prevalent wetland area. They're just um, a tree with a lot going for them. Um, they provide an area for aquaculture. You have two ecosystems interacting here, freshwater and saltwater. A lot of oceanic species use mangroves as nurseries. There's a huge amount of biodiversity due to the interaction between these different ecosystems. And as a result, you get some really great characteristic species in there, like the archerfish, or the iconic fish, famous for spitting water as a projectile to not prey into the water to eat. Many of us will have seen the incredible biodiversity of mangrove forests, either at the World Museum, where you can watch the amazing archerfish that Simon mentioned, catching their dinner, or thanks to the legendary broadcasts of David Attenborough. But their impact on human life was still relatively unclear. I asked Simon if they provided any benefits to people, and particularly if they had any role to play in helping humanity face its most significant challenge to date, the climate crisis and climate change. So the main way mangroves uh, protect against climate change is by protecting uh, people from flooding. Uh, so climate change is predicted to increase the intensity and frequency of coastal storms, for example. And the way uh, mangroves do that is by catching the energy of the waves. And the key principle behind that is that waves don't transfer water, they transfer energy. So it's really that energy that's important, that's creating those ripples, not the actual water that's going along with it. So the way we capture that energy is by using the mangroves as a buffer to absorb energy. So when the waves hit the mangroves, um, all the root systems, the husks, the leaves, um, capture the momentum of the wave. And then that reduces the wave height. It reduces the um, intensity with which the waves are hitting the shore. The actual proportion is per 100 metres of mangroves. It reduces wave height by some 40%. And so at the other end of a mangrove where people might be living, um, you'll have much smoother water than on the other side. And of course, um, it just doesn't matter for water as well. The other key uh, mechanism for driving waves um, is wind. Wind often uh, helps reform waves after they diminish by giving more energy into the water. So when wind uh, travels through a mangrove, uh, the energy is also absorbed in the trees. So the air behind the mangrove uh, will also be calmer. And this means the wind will no longer be able to whip up and reform those waves. So it's a bit of like a, I suppose, a, a pincer movement where the, uh, the waves of the ocean are calmed by engaging with the mangroves and the energy being absorbed there. 
but the wind can't reform those waves as well. Mangroves are also cheaper. They're about four to six times cheaper than the most commonly used alternative, which are submerged breakwaters. And one of the reasons why they're cheaper is as climate change increases sea levels, as it changes the intensity and frequency of these storms, we're going to have to adapt the defences we have in place. So with mangroves, that's a simple case of uh, good forest management, making sure the soils are healthy, making sure the forest has room to propagate. And with these more hard defences, as we say, this hard engineering, you need to either pay more concrete down, more rocks, which is harder to produce, more logistically difficult to move, or you want to increase them in size themselves, which again is very costly. Um, they're also more costly to repair. Um, as imagine repairing like a little concrete bunker or a, a rocky reef out to sea is going to be more costly than uh, a forest on the shore, especially when a forest itself grows back, right? It's its own sustainable ecosystem. It was surprising to hear that these water-based plants are essential for life to survive on land and that they're essentially acting as unsung heroes, protecting millions of people across the globe. Given that they've filled this important role, Surely mangroves across the world would be protected from human activity and their growth encouraged. So mangroves are a forest in crisis, essentially. Since the, 19, since the 1980s, about 20% of the world's mangrove forests have been lost, which uh, is at least over 35,000 kilometres off the top of my head. And this has largely been to, uh, due to human activity. A key example of how humans are uh, impacting upon mangroves or damaging mangroves is actually summarized by the um, shrimp farming industry. Artificial shrimp farms make up about half of all global shrimp production, and they use mangrove forests to do it. They're like a multi-billion dollar industry, tens of billion dollars uh, go into it. It's surged and grown since the 1980s by... Um, a huge level of production, um, but it's also really damaging to the forests. So artificial shrimp ponds will replace trees. It will re redirect flow away from the forest, which is bad because they're an aquatic environment. They need that water to survive, right? And then they also contaminate the surrounding land with salt and pollutants and effluent and antibiotics. And one of the key issues is these artificial shrimp farms often only last a few years. So when they go, they leave behind this impoverished land, which is useless for humans, but also useless for wildlife. They can't produce it, can't grow back. Um, there's a lot of factors that threaten mangroves. This is pollution, this is urbanization, uh, farm, industrial farming and farm intensification, and of course, climate change. But also all of these factors are interlinked as well. So climate change will impact mangroves due to the rising sea levels, uh, changing air and water temperatures, and the intensity of storms that come in, the increased intensity and frequency of these storms. And mangroves can adapt to this. They migrate. Uh, they'll slowly move up or down the coast to areas which are more um, suitable for them to thrive. But the level of urbanization that's undergoing in a lot of countries uh, restricts mangroves. So road infrastructure, cities and towns, um, agricultural zones, they all really restrict the mangrove forests to where they are now. And without space to expand, these forests will perish and the benefits are lost. Uh, for example, the Philippines have lost half of their mangrove forests um, in the last century, and that's just due to urban development. 
It was disheartening to hear that yet another natural habitat was under significant threat from human activity, particularly one that played such an active role in protecting humanity from the worst effects of severe weather. I wanted to know how the plight of mangroves could be brought to the forefront of people's minds and if museums could help with this. I think a key point is awareness and a key point is bringing attention to that awareness. So those are two different things. By bringing attention is you highlight perhaps the more interesting aspects of uh, mangroves. So maybe you can highlight the hermaphroditic fish that like live in the branches or the archer fish, for example. And then now you talk about biodiversity, right? You've got to step in. And then it's like, well, why is biodiversity good? Well, it helps the economy. It helps. It kind of shows um, how important mangroves are. And then from there, it's just a step-by-step process of like kind of you put the really shiny thing there, but then you switch it around with like, and also this is some really stuff we need to know. It's a very common tactic in science communication, right? People, when I communicate science, people love hearing about disasters. Like, look at these huge hurricanes, these huge floods. And then it's like, but also things are kind of getting worse. We are losing our flood predictions and we need to do something about it. So I think museums are great in terms of raising that awareness. Um, And there's certainly a lot that can be said to it. I think mangroves in particular are a good case study just because there's so many angles you can approach it. You can use biodiversity. As I said, people love animals. It's an easy avenue to approach people from. But at the same time, people care about jobs. They care about um, how they're going to live. The news about the climate crisis and climate change is often overwhelmingly negative, with good reason as there's been little in the way of meaningful political action taken to try and combat it. I wanted to hear Simon's perspective on it. As a climate change scientist and expert on eco-hydraulics, he was better placed than most to give me an honest answer on the future of mangrove forests and the climate crisis itself. Was he optimistic about them? Was there anything the average person could do to help? Am I optimistic? Um, I'm tense, I think, is the best response I have. We know what needs to be done. There's absolutely time to change, but we don't have that much time. And political change is very slow. So yeah, it's absolutely a mixed bag in terms of how I'm feeling about the future. If you want to make a behavioural change uh, for to help mangroves, eat organic shrimp. If organic shrimp farmers usually have a, a mandate where they protect at least 50% of the mangroves in the areas they use, so if you eat seafood, look for the garlic shrimp. I know that artificial shrimp will be very likely going at the detriment to the environment they're made in. And beyond that, again, it's pushing for that political and policy change, um, making sure you have a, a loud voice about it, telling people you know about projects, making people more aware of what's going on, and also contacting people and decision makers in power, whether that's through directly talking to the MP, or maybe you're wanting to get involved in a a larger organisation that perhaps lobbies for change, like a charity perhaps, or an organisation. A hot one story, I think, is how the now ex-Minister of Environment for Senegal now leads one of the world's largest uh, mangrove replanting schemes. Um, I think by the mid-90s, Senegal had lost about 100 uh, and 33,000 acres of mangroves. What he did is set up a project which has since replanted about 40,000 acres. So you look at those projects, see what needs support. If you can, as an individual, support them somehow, 
then do so. You can maybe, maybe it's monetary support, maybe it's some other kind of support. And so there's optimism in that we know what to do. There's a lot of hope there. We can change the direction we're going in. Action against climate change can feel like a swim against the current. But as we rekindle our closeness to the natural world, we find we have so much to gain from a more harmonious and balanced relationship with it. Not just for the critical protection of the planet's flora and fauna, but our communities, quality of life, and mental health. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more stories like this, you can support us by making a donation or becoming a member at liverpoolmuseums.org.uk slash join and support. Thanks for listening to the National Museums Liverpool podcast and remember to check out the other episodes in the series. 